Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. It's been a few weeks uh, since I've been up here to teach, so it's good to be back up here with you. It always feels weird. Like I love that song. It's the perfect prayer before this, but it always feels weird to get up here and talk after that. Where it's like I'm finding myself at a loss for words. I've got nothing to say. Would you just speak? And then I get up here and start talking. Um, and so I hope that most of what you hear today isn't just me, <laughs> but that it's what God has to say to us out of the truth of his word. And we're going to jump into that in just a minute. Um, I do have a few things I want to say as we're getting started. First of all, I want to thank Big Daddy Word, Eric Moreno again, for teaching for us the past two weeks, especially on such short notice last week. I was really grateful to be here last week and hear the things that God said to us out of Mark chapter 5 um, and the things that you all shared. It was a really good morning. Um, and so thank you for stepping up again last week, Eric. I appreciate that. A couple of announcements just for you to have in mind. Um, as a staff, we're aware right now of a few financial needs in our church. And this is something that we've done on a regular basis in the past where when we have a fifth Sunday, we take up a, a, a second separate special offering specially focused on helping people, members of the church who are in need. And so next Sunday is a fifth Sunday, and we wanted to give you a, just a week in advance to be preparing, uh, just in addition to what you usually give if you would like to designate um, a gift toward our benevolence fund. Online through the website, there will be a little drop-down thing where you can select benevolence, or if you want to bring it in next week and drop it in the boxes back there and mark that that part of it is benevolence. Everything that you give that's designated that way, we're going to use uh, to try to help meet some of these needs and just continue to live out, hopefully live out what we've seen in the book of Acts last year as we studied through it, where the church shares what we have, and we share things in common, and we meet one another's needs, and, and that we just are trying to share life together and say, hey, when we have plenty and you're in need, we want to share what we have. And when you have plenty and we're in need, we know that you'll do the same. And so this will be one of those opportunities. I, and while we're talking about that, I do just want to thank all of you. Um, we continue to be in just improving financial situation. That's the best way I know how to say it right now. The best financial situation we've been in since way before the pandemic. Um, and so thank you for that. We aren't necessarily quite to the place um, where weekly giving matches what we would say our weekly budget needs are, but we're much closer. And there's some things happening both in conversations with our, our lender and then possibly maybe hearing something from the insurance company the next week. Uh, we've had a lot of conversations the past couple of weeks with little things like get this in order, get this in order, get this in order, and then we'll have a final judgment from the umpire, that kind of stuff, um, where we're just really thankful that God keeps providing, keeps providing in unexpected ways, keeps providing in ways where we all kind of look around and are like, we didn't have anything to do with this. I don't even know what's happening right now, but God just keeps providing us. So I wanted to thank you. I want us to really acknowledge that God's the one doing this. Um, and while I'm thanking you for your generosity, just say that we want to continue to grow in that type of grace and that next week's another one of those opportunities to do that. Um, and so if you've got any questions or anything, let me or the staff know and, and we can explain it maybe better than I did just now. But our intention is, just in addition to our regular giving next week, to designate some stuff to help some families in the church that are in need. You also heard that Candy Cruise In is next Sunday evening. Um, if you still want to dress up, do a booth, help hand out candy, we'd love for you to do that. Or if you're just going to come and be a part of it that evening, if you want to bring candy, we can definitely use more candy. So those are some options with that. And then, I said it's been a few weeks since I've been up here. We are going to get into Ephesians 
5, 1 through 6, 9 here in a minute. And I know that's a big chunk. Um, I wanted to keep it all together today because I think it is one section that goes together. And I think having it together may help us interpret different parts of it. But then over the next few weeks, like there is a lot of stuff in this section. And there's a lot of practical stuff that just speaks to our daily life and how we live out being a follower of Jesus. And so over the next few weeks, we may break it up and take some smaller chunks once we've seen the whole thing. So don't feel rushed that we've got to get every single thing in today. Like There may be sections where you're like, oh, I really want to talk about this, or I'm really curious about this, or whatever, and we don't even touch it today, and that'll be okay. And so what I'm going to do, since we've got such a big section and it's going to take up so much time, is we're going to spend some time on another part of the Bible first. <laughs> we're going to do even more verses. But my reason for that is the last time I was actually sort of up here, I was more right there. I don't know if you remember, we had a family service. How many of you were here for the family service? All right. And it's fine if you weren't. How many of you realized that we had an Old Testament prophetess with us that morning? Eric knows. Do you remember my young girl buddy who wanted to talk about poop all morning? The poop service, now you remember. And it, it did, as I was thinking about it later, there were so many good things about it. And some of us may sit here, and I think this is, a, this is actually a really good learning moment for us, teaching moment. Some of us may sit here and think, that's inappropriate. That's disrespectful. That's irreverent. That should never happen in a worship service. And maybe none of y'all think that. Like, I will acknowledge we're a little bit different of a bunch here at Friendship. <laughs> like, y'all may have been like, that's the first time we've come close to having the type of service I think we should have all the time. Um, but it, it's funny how our standards can become more important to us than God's standards. And our scruples can more define what we think is right and wrong or appropriate and inappropriate than God's word. And especially because sometimes we're just not familiar enough with the Bible to even know what God's like. That there may be some things that God does or says with really significant spiritual importance that we're completely unaware of. And so it just felt like this was a good day for us to see one of those. And so, just in case you weren't here, or if it's been three weeks, in case you've forgotten, the way the conversation went that day in the middle of our, our Bible time was somebody had said, one of the kids, the truth about God was that Jesus always loves us no matter what. That's a really good truth. And then I think the comment was, even when we poop? And I said, yes. And then we started talking about, like, actually, if you can think about the worst or the most embarrassing or the dirtiest things in your whole life, Jesus still loves you then. And so we went back and forth a few times, and you know how kids are. We worked that word in like 20 times by then. <laughs> and so eventually we ended up with the illustration of sin is like heart poop, which I was like, hey, we've crushed that. Well done. <laughs> but let me tell you something. You can't ever one-up a kid. You know that, right? And so our little Old Testament prophetess came back with, so is Jesus the toilet who takes our sin away? <laughs> and I was like, yes, like, that's actually a good illustration. Now, I want you to see really why it's such a good illustration. So up on the screen, Ezekiel 3, Old Testament here. This is God giving Ezekiel instructions. And he said to me, son of man, Go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. So this is God giving Ezekiel his words to give to his people. 
But, God warns him, the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they're not willing to listen to me, because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead. I'm going to make that a little thicker real quick. Have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. So just see right here, right off the bat, God says, there's a heart problem in Israel. And because of their heart problem, they don't listen to what I say. And then he goes on a little later in chapter 4, and he says, so Ezekiel, I'm going to give you an illustration. I want you to be an illustration for Israel to show them what their heart is like in front of me. I mean, this is exactly what's going on here at the beginning of Ezekiel. And your food that you shall eat, Ezekiel, shall be by weight 20 shekels a day. From day to day you shall eat it. And water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hen. From day to day you shall drink. And you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on... What did God pick here? Told you. We had an Old Testament prophetess in here the other day. He says, their heart is so dirty that here's how you're going to illustrate it for them. You're going to cook your food over human dung. That's an old word. I heard a little girl the other day. Poop, right? And the Lord said, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them. Then I said, Ah, oh, Lord God, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> Behold, I've never defiled myself. From my youth up till now, I've never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I assign to you cow's dung instead of human dung. Thank you so much. <laughs> How's that any better? <laughs> On which you may prepare your bread. So this is God really saying, Show the people how nasty their heart is before me. Show the people how dirty their sin is, their disobedience and their rebellion and their unwillingness to listen to me. And then, see the second half of the illustration, we get almost through the whole book to chapter 36, and here comes God with the solution. It's what our prophetess called a toilet a few weeks ago. I, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove this dirty, nasty heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so God says, this really is how dirty your heart is. And you need to see it. You need to know that all of your idols, it's the song that Darren led us in this morning, all the things you run to instead of God, all the places you seek refuge instead of God, all the places you try to find hope and fulfillment instead of God, all the things that you look to in the way that you should only look to God, all the things you trust in the way you should only trust God, all the things that you value in the way that you should only value God, all those things. This is how nasty they are to him. Like, spiritually speaking, if we had eyes to see, that's what that looks like when those things rule in your heart instead of God having the rightful place in his heart. And somehow, I know we can walk in here and kids can say something about poop and a toilet and that feels cringy to some of us. 
And I just need you to know our hearts are a million times more cringy spiritually. The idolatry of our lives is a million times more spiritually before God. Even when our own standards and our own scruples and our own human righteousness takes the place of what God's actually said, it's a million times more cringy before God. And he's like, maybe, maybe an illustration like this will open your eyes and you'll see what your heart's actually like. And you'll see how desperately you need to be cleansed. And then, then you'll see how beautiful and wonderful it is that I have promised that I'll clean you up. I'll sprinkle you with water and wash away your sin and take it away. And I'll take out that nasty, dirty heart and I'll put a new one in there. A clean one. And I'll get rid of your rebellious spirit and your hard forehead and I'll put my spirit in you. Like this is... The whole gospel right here. This is the whole work of God showing that he's the one who does all of it for our good and for his glory. For our good because we're in a desperate situation and we can't fix it and only he can. He says, I'll fix it for you. And for his glory because he's saying, you're supposed to be my people and you're rebellious and you're dirty and you're nasty and you're wicked and you don't listen to me and you're disobedient. So I'll change you so that you'll really be my people. (laughs) I'll make you who you need to be. I'll give you what I want from you. I mean, it's the whole thing right here. That in the gospel, all of us are just epically, terribly, infinitely more sinful than we want to believe. But in the gospel, God is epically, massively, monumentally more loving and gracious than you would ever dare to dream. Everything that you need, on the deepest level, he's offering to you in Jesus. And that's our hope. That's what our Old Testament prophetess reminded us of a few weeks ago. That's why we gather and worship this morning. Every word that we sang this morning is because God has done this in Jesus. And it's why we're going to pray right now with a hope and an expectation of God hears us. We can come into his presence. We're accepted and we're welcomed. And he answers these prayers and he speaks to us from his word. And he's got something to say this morning to you, to me, to all of us as his gathered body. And so I'm going to pray that he'll speak and the spirit will be the teacher. We're going to read Ephesians 5, 1 through 6, 9. I know, listen, there may be all sorts of stuff that pops up for you and that's great. Anything that you want to share, we'll, just, we'll take a chunk of time for that. I've got a couple things I think I'm going to point out if we have time. And if not, we'll get to it next week. Um, but as I read this section... Always the foundational starting place. What's this teach us about God? And I'm dead serious right now that we can have our kids come up here and talk about poop in a toilet. What's this teach us about God? I mean, really. It's, it is the book of Ezekiel. And so Ephesians 5, 1 through 6, 9, all the more. What's this teach us about God? And, and we'll see where he takes us from there. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time right now. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that when we are dirty and rebellious and far from you, you are gracious and you make promises and you offer things that are just because of you. That you offer to give what we need and do what we can't and work in us and change us and make us who you have called us to be and make us who we have never been on our own. And so, Father, I ask right now that because of Jesus and because of your promises and your word that you would 
continue that work and that process during this time. That you will give us soft hearts that hear you and respond to you this morning. That you'll give us spiritual eyes to see the truth of who we are without you. The truth of who you are all the time and who you are for us. And the truth of who you call us to be and you promise to make us in Jesus. I pray that your spirit will be the master teacher right now. That he will open us up to the truth of your word and he will open the truth of your word up to us. We ask you to do this and we trust you to do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Ephesians 5, if you want to start in verse 1 and we'll read through chapter 6, verse 9. What's this teach us about God? Uh, And one more thing before I read. I know that there's sections in here that there's some confusion that surrounds them sometimes. Like there's a lot of conversations about some of the sections that we're about to read. And there's that confusion. It's one of those deals where if this is the road, there's a ditch over here and there's a ditch over here. All right? And some people see this ditch and like, I don't want to fall on that, and they swerve over here and fall on this one. <laughs> or they see this ditch, I don't want to fall on that, and they swerve over here. And that's one of the reasons why it's important to say, what's this teach about God and just look at him? is that if we just keep looking at him and following Jesus and focusing on him, he keeps us out of both ditches. So I know there's a lot of conversation. I know there's a lot of confusion. I know this can be really controversial, some of the things in this section. And then I also know that just in our culture in general, there's all kinds of opinions about how all this should actually look. And most of it has nothing to do with what the Bible says or right understanding of the Bible. But one of the things I want to say is, one of the beautiful things about us walking verse by verse through books of the Bible is that we don't pick and choose. We're not like, hey, that was a tough one. Like, people may misunderstand. People may get upset. That's controversial. Let's just do something different. It's like, no, this is what comes next. Here's what we're doing next. And it's one of the ways that we get to submit to God and let him set the agenda for what we talk about. And then even more, just, just so you know kind of where I fall out on this, I think, and some of you who know me will laugh because I'm just just the way I am, I know, but like when it's controversial, we don't sidestep it, we just lean in even more. Like, fine, we'll spend more time there (laughs) because we need to hear it right now. Like, it speaks to where we are, and we need to say, what does the Bible really say about this, and kind of sort through that and hear that from God instead of all the million things that are out there and the million things that are in our own minds and our own opinions, just what does the Bible say? So I just want to acknowledge that up front, and that's why if we need to come back and take pieces and spend time on them, we're going to do that, but here we go. Ephesians 5, what's this teach about God? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. 
But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free." Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him. All right, I know that's packed, but the parts that jump out to you today, that you feel the Spirit saying, hey, I'm teaching you something about God right here. What do you want to share with us? Where do you want to start us? Truths about who God is, his nature, character, how he works. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. What stands out to you? Okay, could you want to phrase that about God for us, Tyson? Putting you on the spot there. There you go. That's, that is what you were thinking. Oh, by the way, give me just a second here. My uh, One of my daughters decided to do a bunch of art on here the other day. And 
I don't think we're set up right, but it's just going to be what it is today. Jesus is the ultimate example for us to follow. You know, when we could unpack this forever, this very first verse that Tyson pointed here, therefore be imitators of God, you know, this of God piece. How easy is it for us to look to a hundred other things in the world, in our lives, even good examples, and set them up and hold them up as, you know, here's the goal, here's the standard, here's what I'm trying to become like, like, this, who they are, or what they expect, or what they do, or what they've achieved, whatever, that becomes the thing that defines who I'm trying to be and who I want to be. And I think packed right into this is, yet again, this God-centered view of your entire life. Like, who defines you? God. Who's your identity? Who tells you who you are? God. Who tells you who you're supposed to be? God. Like who sets the standards for your life? God. And then who provides you the perfect picture of what he's calling you to? God does in Jesus. To be intimately familiar with how God revealed himself in Jesus. When Jesus was like, it was, it was Jesus making God visible for us. And when you look at Jesus and you see how he lived, you see how God would live in all those situations. When you hear the things Jesus said, you hear what God is saying. When you see the life of Jesus, you see the life of God lived out in a human way where we can look at it and say, that's what it's supposed to be. And it simultaneously, and this whole section does this, it does two things for us. We look at Jesus and we're like, well, I can't do that. You're right. Like that's the first part of the gospel. You can't do that the way he did. This is an impossible command. Be imitators of God. Like, do you actually hear? Like, do we just blow past that? Or do you hear that? <laughs> Love as perfectly and as infinitely as God does. Forgive as completely and unconditionally as God does. Pour out grace and mercy and compassion as selflessly and abundantly as God does. It's impossible. And that, it comes in this very section, if you look back at the end of chapter 4, where those are the type of things that Paul has just said. You know, gracious and compassionate to one another, loving one another, forgiving each other. And he say, not just like on a human level, the way God does, imitate God in this. So it's impossible, and it should be humbling where we would look and be like, I can't do what God tells me to do. There's nothing in me that I can summon up that will be good. I can't be disciplined enough. I can't be religious enough. I can't be determined enough. I don't have enough strength or self-effort. I can't, and it should humble us. There is a piece of the gospel that should break us of pride and self-reliance and self-righteousness and self-effort. And so the gospel breaks us and humbles us in that way. And then it comes right back on the other side and picks us up and puts us back together and says, but Jesus has done this for you already. As beloved children. Do you hear that next part? It's not do this so that you will become children of God. It's not do this and God will accept you as children. It's not do this and you can earn the status of being God's children. It's not even do this and prove that you are God's. It's do this because God's already called you his children. You are 
Like, as beloved children already, God came and made you his children and accepted you into his family, made you part of his family when you weren't doing this, when you couldn't do this, and now, because you're part of his family, he promises you things that only belong to the family. You have an inheritance in Jesus that God the Father gives you where the Spirit of Christ comes to live in you, and all these things you can't do, all these things you will never, ever, ever be able to do on your own, the Spirit of Christ can do. We've already seen him do it in Jesus' life on earth. Jesus has shown that he can do this, that the words he speaks are the words of the Father, the things he does are the works of the Father, that he is God incarnate. He can. He can imitate God because he is God. And now he lives in you by his Spirit, and he offers you all that he has and all that he is. And so in the same moment that the gospel humbles you and breaks you of all this self-reliance, the gospel calls you to the hope of reliance on Jesus and trusting Jesus and receiving from Jesus everything that you need. A supernatural work that actually enables you to live this way when you could never do it naturally. And so Jesus is the ultimate example for us to follow. Jesus is the only way for us to follow his example. He's the way that we're supposed to live, and he's the way that we can live that way. What else stands out to you? What are the truths about God? so many ways to dive into this. I know I'm thinking about chasing this though because it fits a truth that I had. God, yeah, let's just, I've got to fix that little feature there that somehow got changed. I don't even know how to do it. You, know, you can erase like a whole object or you can erase each of the line. I always have it set to erase the whole object and Sydney switched it on me and I don't even know how to switch it back. That's what happens when your kids play with your stuff and they know so much more about technology than you do. God loathes emptiness. We're talking spiritually here. Wastefulness. And the reason I was sitting there thinking, and I, am, I'm, I want to go ahead and chase this for a minute, and if this takes us like so far off and you all don't get to talk, I'm sorry, um, but because it ties in, so John's pointing right here, making the best use of the time because the days are, are evil. Let's start there for a second. You know, you, and if this doesn't apply to you, you know, sometimes you come and there's stuff that God wants to say to somebody else, and, and you're like, no, that's not me. That's not how I live out my Christian life or my religious life, and that's okay. I think this is common for a lot of us a lot of times. Um, there's a mindset, religiously speaking, where when we say because the days are evil, that our idea is, so protect yourself from that. Hide from that. Huddle up in your little club, in your little building, and make sure you're holy when they're not. And it's like because the days are evil, withdraw and get away from it, and just try to not be affected by that. 
like a, a strategy of retreat almost. And do you hear already hear like a strategy almost of attack, but, but certainly of aggressive? Make the best use of the time. Like this is not a don't sit and do nothing and just make sure you aren't impacted by the world. But it's like you're on, you're on the aggressive for Jesus here. And, uh, you know, the, the sports analogy is, and if you hate sports and hate sports analogy, I'm sorry. I know we have one staff person that does, and so I, I try to be mindful of that, but sometimes they're really good. How many of you know the difference in a sports team playing to win versus playing not to lose? You know what I'm talking about when you say that? You know, like in a football game, since it's football season and Tennessee is doing really, really well, playing to win is we're trying to score when we have the ball. Playing not to lose is we're ahead now, and we're just trying to run out the clock. Can we run enough plays to get off this field and go home? And you see it happen sometimes where a team plays to win, and they get up a couple of touchdowns. And then they start playing not to lose. And what happens is everything they were doing right, it just kind of falls apart, and they forget. And the other team eventually catches up, and they can't kick it back in gear. It's like shifting back from not to lose to win is a really hard mindset. And in a way, God's saying, play to win. Don't play not to lose. Don't, don't play to just avoid the bad stuff. Go pursue what's good. And the place this really stands out to me, and I'm going to put in a couple of truths in a minute, is verse 18. This is what one I was thinking about, and this is one of those confusing, controversial, lots of different cultural opinions type verses. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. I want you to think again in religious circles how many people focus on this part of the verse. Don't get drunk with wine. And let's just acknowledge that's there. The Bible says that. I'm not saying it doesn't. But do, are you aware of religious traditions? Have you maybe grown up in places? Maybe do you take the view now where we've said, okay, God says don't get drunk with wine. You know, I'm going to do the best I can to do what God wants. So what, the way I'm going to take that from henceforth for me and for everybody else is there's never going to be a drop of alcohol that touches my lips. And then it becomes a badge of honor and pride. This is what I do. This is how I set myself apart from everybody else. And really quickly, I start to be defined by I'm a teetotaler who doesn't drink instead of I'm a follower of Jesus. And even more, this becomes the standard by which I measure everybody else. Are you really a follower of Jesus? Are you as serious as I am? Do you never drink at all? Do you, are you familiar with what I'm talking about? And it could be a million other things, okay? But this one's just really explicit, and it's really common in, our, like in the Bible Belt, where there's always been controversy, and in our culture, where you know, it's, it seems like it's one extreme or the other. Like you either have way too loose a view of alcohol and drink way too much, or you have a really rigid view of alcohol and don't drink at all. And listen, and I know, just so you know, I know there are people who struggle with that. I'm not, like, addiction is something that I've seen multiple times in my own family. And it started with alcohol with some of those people. And so I know there's times when it would be a great approach to say, I'm never going to drink at all. But that's different than my identity is. I don't drink at all, and this defines who I am, and this is how I'll evaluate my spirituality and everybody else's. Do you see the difference there? Um, but what I want to point out right now most clearly is that's not the point of this verse. Like, do you know how often we stop there? It's like we just chop the rest of it off. What's the actual point of this verse? <laughs> Be filled with the Spirit. The reason Paul says don't get drunk with wine is because when you're drunk, alcohol is controlling you now. Like it has, it has an excessive and unhealthy influence on your mind and your heart, your thoughts and your actions when you're drunk. 
And he's saying, I don't want alcohol to control you in a way that only the Spirit should control you. And the way that alcohol controls someone when they're drunk, that's actually how you should be controlled when the Spirit lives inside of you. Like He should be influencing you to do things that you wouldn't do normally if you weren't filled with the Spirit. Just like there's some things that alcohol may influence you to do that you wouldn't do normally if you weren't filled with alcohol. Do you see the parallel there? But a lot of us take the negative. Right? We're like, well, I'm going to empty my life of this. I'll strip this out. I'll get rid of all the bad stuff, and I won't do the bad stuff. And we just stop there. And that is never what Christianity looks like. God is always saying, the things I call you not to do is because there's something so much better. There's something better. I, I want that negative thing replaced with this good thing, this better thing. Yeah, I don't want alcohol to control you, but it's because I want my spirit to control you. And so just to like really drive it home is, if I'm right based on some of the conversations that I've had with a lot of religious people and the interactions I've had with them, and, and you know, there is a certain level at which you can view the fruit of somebody's life and say this is where they are spiritually, I've known a whole lot of people who are completely sober and don't have an ounce of the spirit inside of them. I've known a whole lot of people who legalistically and self-righteously never drink and have never been spirit-filled and lived out the gospel at all in any of their interactions that I've seen. And that's not the goal here. Like to, to, to build up your ego and your sense of self-confidence and self-righteousness because you live up to a human standard that you've created that's not even what verse 18 says in a way that causes you to depend less on the Spirit and feel your need for Jesus less... It's not a good thing. You can be sober your entire life. You can never drink a drop of alcohol and you can completely miss the gospel. And so the truth here I would say is that Christianity, and this is more in the way of application in some ways, is not primarily a religion of avoidance. And what I mean is we're not primarily avoiding bad things. Or, or in other words, like, if you avoid all the bad things in the world, you're not a Christian just because of that. And so, if, you know, we're saying not, not primarily an illusion of avoidance of bad things. Christianity is a religion of pursuit. And specifically, hear it in this phrase right here, following Jesus. Like when Jesus defines what it means, he's calling you to say, he says, come follow me. Pursue me. Come after me. Where you see me going, go with me. Do you hear it right there? Like at the very core, he doesn't just say, find all the bad stuff and stay away from it. He says, follow me. Pursue me. Replace all that with me. The reason you don't go over there is because I'm not over there. And you're coming with me. Now, when I say not primarily a religion of avoidance, that's why. Because when you're following Jesus, there's all sorts of stuff you'll end up avoiding. Like, like if you were really to follow Jesus perfectly, there's all sorts of places you'll never go. But it's not because you're not trying to avoid those places anymore, right? It's because you're following him and that's just not where he is. On the flip side, you could avoid all those places 
And if you never look to him and never follow him, that's not Christianity. He, he says it in the same way. We've been in John a lot with, with the teaching team when he says, take up, if anyone would be my disciple, he must take up his cross daily. Right, you know that part? Somebody died to, die to himself, take up his cross daily. And then do you remember the rest of the sentence? And follow me. And again, we do the exact same thing. We chop off the first half. It's like, what's your cross to bear? How are you dying to yourself? And we just focus, make sure you don't, whatever, whatever hard, terrible thing it is you have to do, whatever thing you have to do, all that. It's like the only reason he calls you to do that, to die to that, is so you can follow him. The only reason he calls you to die to yourself is so you can find your life in him. Die to this old natural life that's never going to be good enough for you. Die to all these wretched natural worldly things that are idols in your heart and be resurrected to a new life in him. And if you were to die to all that and never find him, it's pointless. It's not what he calls you to. Christianity is very much a positive religion, a moving forward, aggressive, assertive, following Jesus. Jesus calling you to something. Even in Ezekiel today, God doesn't just say, hey, get rid of that bad heart. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, get rid of all the wicked. He, no, he says, I'm going to put a good heart inside of you. I'm going to give you my spirit. He's taking out the hard, cold, dead heart so he can put in a soft, living, responsive heart. And, and this is one of the, it's a really good distinction that helps us sometimes weigh, have I fallen into just human standards and human religion, and, and I'm kind of jumping through hoops that I've created that make me feel better about myself, and it's a very natural thing. Or is my religion really a supernatural religion that God has called me to, that God has revealed, and now God empowers by His Spirit? Does that make sense, what we're saying right here? And so, yeah, like God doesn't want from you just... Emptiness. He doesn't want you just void of bad things. He doesn't want you just avoiding bad. He doesn't want you just to huddle up and hunker down and say, well, I'll, I'll make it through till it's over and I won't let the bad stuff get to me. He's calling you to more confidence and hope and expectation and anticipation of his work in Jesus and his work in you than that. He said, I want you to have the confidence to take on the world. Don't just sit in here and say, i got to be careful that the world doesn't change me. Go change the world with the gospel. Go change the world with the word of God. Go change the world with the spirit of God. Don't just say, well, the goal is that those unholy sinners won't impact me. That's not the goal. The goal is that you will go impact them. The goal is that you'll see that you are them. And Jesus came and impacted you. And now Jesus lives inside of you. And he said, I want to do the same thing through you with them. Does that make sense, what I'm saying there? And do you see that in the past? And do you see how dangerous it is when we just take this section? And we, like, this is an illustration. I feel like it's a good illustration because it's pretty relevant. We do this so often where we'll grab a part of a verse. We'll pull it out. And like, this is going to become my bumper sticker. And... And I'm going to live by that. You know, and I'm going, to have, I'm going to have some creative ways to say this. It'll be catchy. And the, the biggest thing for everything I've just said, you, you, know, you know why it's so misleading? Because we just ripped that first half of the verse out and we didn't ask what's this teach about God. 
right? We just we, we boiled it down to here's a behavior that I will or won't do, and it will distinguish me from other people around me. Because if you ask, what's this teach about God? You automatically get deeper than that, and you say, God wants to control you with his spirit more than anything else in your life controls you. And by the way, do you realize how much higher of a standard that is? It's not like we're kind of like, guess what we're going to do? We're going to lower the standard on drunkenness today. That's not what we're actually doing. What we're doing is, you know, you know what never drinking a drop is? That's a really low bar. Like, come on. I know all sorts of people that do that for no reason. That's anything to do with, like, an Olympic athlete that just wants to be really good at what he does and be famous and rich because he won the gold medal. That has nothing to do with Jesus. But when you say the goal is that the Spirit of God will control you more than anything else in your life, we just took a bar that was like, yeah, most of us can step over that bar. Some of us may struggle with an addiction in a way where we can't step over that bar, and that's okay. When you can't step over a really low bar, you know what? Jesus came for that. Jesus came when it's revealed, I trip over the lowest of all low bars, and I, I can't even get over them. He's like, it's okay. I don't break bruised reeds. I don't put out smoldering wicks. He's gentle, and he's compassionate, and he's gracious, and he sympathizes. But we take a bar that most of us can probably step over by our own effort, and he raises it to a level where he's like, none of you are getting over this thing. Like none of you have ever been controlled by the Spirit in this way on your own. Either Jesus does a work of grace in your heart and a continual work of grace, or you'll never get to this. Because the other thing this does then is it widens this verse so much that we have to start asking, what else controls me in a way that only the Spirit of God should? Does the fear of man control me? in a way that only the Spirit of God should? Does people-pleasing control me in a way that only the Spirit of God should? Does my own ambition control me in a way that only the Spirit of God should? Does money control me in a way that only the Spirit of God should? Do material possessions control me in a way that only the Spirit of God should? Does envy and greed and covetousness control me in a way that only the Spirit of God should? Does gluttony control me in a way that only the Spirit of God should? Does and because he's talking about stuff you consume here, does caffeine or refined sugar control me in a way that only the Spirit of God should? Like, am I more dependent on those things to get through a day than I am on the Spirit of God? And I know now, like, everybody's like, get off my toes. Like, it's me too, right? Do I wake up in the morning and I think, I need Jesus and his Spirit to get through this day, or I need Starbucks to get through this day? Like, which one can you not start your day without? <laughs> And the reason it's good for us to get to that place to like where we're really honest about that is it's crazy how we can turn anything into an idol that replaces Jesus. And I know I've told this story before. Maybe some of you heard it, some of you haven't. But I'm going to tell it one more time. If you've heard it, just, yeah, I've heard that. But maybe you'll, maybe you'll hear it differently right now. When I got to go to China several years ago and work with a missionary couple over there, they were great people and loved Jesus and had given up their lives here, moved over there with three kids who were school-aged, Served there for 15 years. I mean, like, if you're talking about, hey, we're putting them up on a pedestal, <laughs> here they are. And I was talking to the husband and wife, and they were talking about learning the language and how hard it had been initially and just how different the culture was and how uncomfortable they'd been and how much they wanted to come home sometimes. And finally, the wife said, I got to a place where the one thing here that felt exactly the same was Coca-Cola. 
And she was like, when I had a can of Coke in my hand, I just, I felt comfortable and I felt safe and secure. And she says, so I got to the place where I started to think, as long as I've got a can of Coke with me, I can go anywhere and do anything. I can talk to these people in their language. I can go in a store and shop. And, and she said, and finally one day God said to me, you trust that can of Coke more than you trust me. You get more spiritual security from that can of Coke than you do from me. Now, is drinking a can of Coke a bad thing in and of itself? No. Like, it's very, very neutral. But in her heart, it had become a replacement for Jesus. And so in her heart, it became something that she had to lay down for a while to make sure that she was turning. Like, it did become at that point for her, I need to trust Jesus instead of this can of Coke. Like, this can of Coke is giving me confidence in a way that's influencing my behavior more than Jesus is. And I'm telling you, it's one of the wretched things about our sin nature that we can take anything. Like, obviously, we can take the bad stuff, but we can take the neutral stuff. And then worst of all, and, and these are the, the most dangerous, we can take the really good stuff and turn them into idols. And then we can hide for a long time there because we can justify how good those things are. <laughs> if it becomes a Jesus replacement for you, if you find your identity in it more than you do in Jesus, if you're defined by it more than you're defined by Jesus, if your worth and value are defined by it more than they're defined by Jesus, if your trust and confidence are in it more than they are in Jesus, if you look to it for security more than you look to Jesus, verse 18, speaking to all of that. And listen, that is a bar so high that God, I mean, what he's saying is he's like, I'm after every part of your heart. I want it all. I want all of you. And I'm going to come and I'm going to keep graciously the way we saw in Ezekiel 36, cleansing every piece and every area of your heart. And what I find in my experience is every time that he does, like he'll, he'll dig down to here and say, hey, we've we got to clean some of this stuff out. And I'm going to work on it with you. I'm going to help you because I know, I know you can't. If you could, you would have done it by now. And you didn't even know it was there until I told you. I can't tell you how often that's the case in my life. We're just like, I wake up, I'm like, my goodness. I didn't even know this was a problem. And like, so, we clean, so then we clean that out. And you know what happens when he cleans that out? Then I can see this. And it's like, oh, <laughs> I thought this was bad. He's like, all right, we're going to start working on this. And he's gracious, and he's patient, and he's compassionate. And then he cleans this out. And it's like, oh, man, now I can see this. It gets deeper, and it gets darker, and he keeps saying, never on your own will you get to the end of it. Never, never will there come a time where you can say, I'm there, it's good enough, I can just do this thing, leave me alone now. Never. You are his. You belong to him. He's your father, and you're his child, and he's continually making you more and more like him. Your fault. <laughs> it was really good, and you're right. Like it's, it's right there. The other thing I was going to talk about this morning, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it now. Am I allowed to give you all homework? I'm allowed to give you all homework. I think I'll give you all homework. How many of you have seen Ocean's Eleven? You all know that movie? You know the George Clooney and Brad Pitt characters? Like Their relationship's so good that they don't have to answer each other? That's that scene there where... Like George Clooney just keeps saying things over and over and over, and Brad Pitt never answers, and they make a decision anyway. Um, go back five one through six nine, and I want you to see 
just how many times, and, and take it as far as you want, that everything in that section is defined by God. Right? As to the Lord, because of God, of God, you know, the, all the things that, that he's the standard. And one of the clearest places to see it, this is not the only place, and I'll kind of jump ahead for where we're going to be a couple of weeks, it's when Paul starts talking about marriage. He's like, here's the only way you can know what marriage is supposed to be. Don't look at marriage. <laughs> and some of you are like, you got that right. Here's the only way you can know what marriage is supposed to be. Look at Jesus and the church. And, and it's not that God looks at marriage and says, hey, this, marriage will be a great way to show us what Jesus and the church is like. That's not the order there in that section. He says, what God has in mind for the relationship between Jesus and the church, that's the standard, that's the reality, that's the foundation. Marriage is supposed to be patterned after that. And so it's always who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit, that's defining everything else in this section. All of our, when he talks to, to masters and bond servants, or for us today, you know, bosses and employees, he's saying, as to the Lord, Remember that you have a master, or remember who you serve. Like, it's never look at this human relationship. and You have to know who God is. And so if you work through it this week, just see how many times, just how many times explicitly he says, you have to know who God is for this to work for you. And I was, you know, when you see that he does that, and here, let's just get in this section. I'll mark a few of them quickly. As to the Lord. Right, you see that in verse 22 there? As Christ is head of the church, 23. And I didn't start in 5 1, so I'm not doing all your homework. I'm just doing some of it. As the church submits to Christ, as Christ loved the church, and then all this is actually still about what Jesus did as the example of how husbands should love their wives. Husbands needed way more instruction than wives here. Um, as Christ does the church. And then he quotes, by the way, Genesis 2 which is God bringing Adam and Eve together as the very first marriage. And Paul's like, even Genesis 2 is not referring to marriage primarily. It's referring to Christ and the church. If Genesis 2 is about Christ and the church, you better believe that everything in marriage is about Christ and the church. Obey your parents in the Lord. Here's another great one. Don't provoke your children to anger. It doesn't stop right there, Right? There's a negative, yeah, avoid this. Why? Because of this positive. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So both, don't avoid the negative just for avoiding the negative, but do the positive. But also the positive is defined by the Lord. And I think we may get here in a couple of weeks, but just to say it right now, one of the ways you can provoke your children to anger over and over and over, and I, you know why I know this, because I struggle with this, is when you bring them up in your discipline and instruction. When your scruples and your pet peeves and your rules become the rules for the family instead of God's. Like if we were really to, to, to nail down and say, you know why I don't want you to do this? Because it gets on my nerves. And I'm going to use all my authority to make sure you don't get on my nerves. Verse, I want you to love Jesus. And I want to point you to Jesus. And I want you to know Jesus. And so here's what's going to be the standard for our family, God. God's standards will be the standard. And when God's standards don't line up with mine, I've got to die to mine. But again, in the Lord, as you would Christ, as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God, as to the Lord, receive back from the Lord 
knowing that you have the same master and there's no partiality. In other words, just because you're the master and they're the bondservant, just because you're the boss and they're the employee, doesn't mean that God prefers you to them, that he values you both equally. Treat them the way that he sees them, not the way that the world's standards have said, here's your standing, here's theirs. That's not the way it is before God. You stand equally before God. So over and over and over now, so I was thinking, I mean, do you see how often that is, by the way? Like, I mean, it's, it's not like once or twice or ever and now and then. It's over and over and over. And so if everything he says in this whole section is because of who God is, because of who Jesus is, because of your relationship with Jesus, if you miss that, if you don't do it because of who God is, if you don't know who God is, there's no way you can understand this. You can try to do some of it, but you won't do it the right way, so I can't put these silly illustrations. But it's like if, if you were building a sandcastle on the beach with me, or, or a slipper, I'm building one with you, and you look at me and you're like, hey, I want you to lay this foundation of the sandcastle, just like the foundation of the Pentagon. You know the only way that helps me at all? If I know what the foundation of the Pentagon's like, Right? If I don't know anything about the foundation of the Pentagon, you saying that means nothing to me. And that's Paul saying, I want you to live as to the Lord. I want you to live like Jesus, who God is, how God lives, what God, you know, over and over and over. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Would the, are you familiar with the love of Christ? Because if you're not, that means nothing to you. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church to the Lord. Do you know what the church's relationship to Jesus is supposed to look like? Because if you don't, that means nothing to you. And you're going and you're trying to live it out in a way that you define or the world defines or the culture defines. And he's saying, you've got to know Jesus. You've got to know who God is for any of this to mean anything to you. Because I can't build a sandcastle foundation that looks like the Pentagon if I know nothing about the Pentagon. You know, if... This would be a nightmare for me, but you're trying to introduce me to fashion design and you're like, I want you to design it like that dingle snapper in Paris. Listen, I don't know what a dingle snapper in Paris is. So that doesn't help me at all. Right? Like I, I, I've got no idea about fashion design now. You say that sentence, I still have no idea about fashion design. And over and over and over, that's what Paul's saying here. As to the Lord. As the Lord. As Jesus. The way that Jesus, as God has done for you in Christ. What God, like, you have to know who God is. It's the most important question that we can ever ask, you know, or let's say we're trying to learn chess together, and I'm trying to use a football analogy for, look, I don't know anything about chess, by the way, so, and I'm trying to use a football analogy for how you want to move your pieces on the board. I'm like, hey, you want your XY deep cross with an H flare and a tight end slow release, you know that tight end slow release, that's what you want to do with this pawn over here, kind of like the tight end, and you're like, I don't know anything about football. It helps you not at all for me to say play chess the way you play football if you don't know about football. Everything the Bible says from start to finish is grounded in who God is. It's defined by who God is. Everything that God has to say for your life is intimately connected to who he is. Everything that God wants for you, everything that God wants from you, everything that God wants in you is because of who he is. If we miss who he is, if we don't understand who he is, there's no way that we get any of that right. If we detach it from him and attach it to ourselves 
or our religion or our religious traditions, we have already violated the essence of it in such a way that it will never be what he's calling us to do. Do you see that in this section? And so that's really my goal for us today is to see how intimately connected all of this is to who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus promises his church and his people. And so as we walk through details the next few weeks, I think it would be good for us to zero in on marriage for a week and to zero in on parenting and, and, and being a, ch- a child for a week and maybe zero in on work and employees and bosses for a week. Well, we'll see if it takes three weeks or not. But as we zero in on those sections... Not to zero in in such a way that we miss the big picture of this is all about who God is and because of who God is. And it has to be defined by who God is. Because I know, like I know the stuff that I read today about marriage. Like it's not popular in our world. And on one side it's rejected in this way. On another side it's distorted in this way. Like a lot of times in a, like a worldly irreligious setting they're like, I hate that, no way. And a lot of times in a religious setting, it gets twisted into something that I don't think the Bible's saying right here. And so if we don't come and attach it back to God and let God define it for us, we're falling off in one ditch or the other. And if we're really skilled, some of us are able to fall off in both of them. <laughs> and so I just, I just want to urge you again today, look to Jesus. See Jesus. See who he is. See the beauty of what we read in Ezekiel at the beginning today. That in all of our filthiness and lostness and emptiness and hard-heartedness and rebellion, God loved us anyway. And he came for us anyway. And he came to us. And he dealt with all of that for us. And he said, here's what I require of you. And so here's what I'll give to you. I'll give to you exactly what I want from you. You can find it only in me and nowhere else. Only in Jesus and nowhere else. And so we're going to pray right now. And we're going to confess that. And we're going to ask him to keep doing that in us. And then we're going to sing a couple more songs of worship where we say, just because of who you are, we praise you, we worship you, we thank you. And we'll have some pastors, elders, staff, wives down here. If you'd like to talk to somebody, pray with somebody, or if you just want to come and pray on your own at the steps, you're welcome to do that as well. Um, But it'll be a time for prayer and worship. So let's pray together right now. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Please help us to see you a little more today than we ever have before. In all of your goodness and your grace and your greatness, Father, please strip away the things in us and the things in our lives that continue to define us more than you. And I pray that as you strip them away, Father, replace them with you, with who you are, with your truth, with your gospel, with your spirit living in us. Please continue to make us into your church and your people in that way. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.